I'm here at Stanford University in a trailer. That's right, a trailer, because that's what a world-class institution puts a world-class professor of biomedical ethics in. This is David Magnus. I, he has so many titles, you guys, uh, and is so well-known that I just have to let him tell you his titles because I will forget them all. So uh, my name's David Magnus, PhD. I uh, direct the Center for Biomedical Ethics. I'm also the Thomas A. Raffin Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics and Professor of Pediatrics Medicine and by courtesy of Bioengineering. I'm an internet rap guy. Uh, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. I, I was so thrilled because I was here in Palo Alto reconnecting with uh, colleagues and and David and I connected and David's been uh, a chair of the ethics committee at Stanford for untold eons and I've been here and I call ethics consult. So he's helped us and our team uh, take care of very difficult uh, conflicts uh, on, on every different level. So I was thrilled because we just did a piece on organ donation that was really aimed at increasing uh, the number of organ donors and dispelling myths around organ donation. And I, I knew when I did it that it wasn't in any means comprehensive, it wasn't in any means perfect, and it wasn't in any means a, a nuanced discussion of the topic. It was a, here's what you need to know before you decide whether to be a donor. Now, what I wanna do for the people who go deep in the game is a world expert on organ donation, on brain death, and the biomedical ethics around those issues. He's been in the press, he does research on this. I wanna talk to him about the details of organ donation and the myths, and also some of the latest research around things that'll blow your mind in terms of organ donation, David. So you saw the piece that I did, and in it, uh, first of all, I used a word which I shouldn't have used. Uh, I said that the the transplant uh, team will come and harvest the organs. Apparently, that's not a word they like to use. Procure, rescue the organs is a better. So right. purely from a, a standpoint of language, it matters because it has a connotation. It sounds like body snatchers are coming from space right. to steal your organs. So that's something I have to say, my bad. But we went into some more depth about equity in organ donation. We, went, we wanted to go into more depth on brain death. Like we, I said, well, you have to be brain dead before they're gonna uh, be able to donate your organs. But what does that mean exactly? So where, do you, where should we start? Should we talk about? Why don't we start with brain death because we should start maybe with the procurement process. Why don't we start with procurement? I'm sorry, the harvest process? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> so we can start with the ethics of procurement and then maybe uh, listing and then allocation and sort of just go through in sort of the order. Does that's that make sense? That's perfect, yeah. Okay, so procurement of organs, as you said, uh, that, that's another myth in a way. A lot of people think that anytime you register for to be an organ donor, uh, that, they'll, that you're, you'll be able to be an organ donor. Mm. It's important for people to know that most people, when they die, are actually not going to be able to donate their organs. You have to die in just the right way in order to be an organ donor, and very, very few people ever actually are able to die in the right way. So only a very small percentage of deaths are people who are eligible to be organ donors. You know, I could barely live right. Now I'm thinking I may not even die right. Yeah, that's because I'm an organ donor, and if they don't get to have this heart, actually, it's my spleen I want to donate. Most people don't understand this. They think it's a vestigial organ that doesn't do a whole lot, immune function. I want to be a spleen donor. Anyways, that aside, what do you mean by dying the right way? How? So most uh, cadaveric organs uh, come from patients who have died because they've been declared brain dead. Yeah. But that's a very rare sort of thing to occur, right? So it means yeah. that you have to both uh, have the loss of functioning of the cerebral cortex and the entire brainstem while also being maintained on ventilatory support. So if patients just die in the field or they just code and they pass away or something happens to them, um, uh, they, they are usually not going to be able to be uh, uh, eligible to be donate donors. So most organs come from uh, branded donors. There's another class called donation after circulatory death, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah, Much fewer organs come that way, and that's another set of very unusual circumstances. But most organs come from patients who have actually been declared brain dead by neuro or death by neurological criteria. That's where we get most of our, our organs from. And uh, the uh, you have to die just in the right way for that to happen. And I can tell you, it is rare. You know, when when if, if 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 I have patients who have passed, it's very rarely with full brain death documented. And again, as he said, it's cortical death and brainstem death. So 
there are criteria that neurologists will use. Yep. Uh, can, can we go through some of those? Like, if, if How would you evaluate for brain death? Sure, and that's actually a very interesting thing. So the mm. way that brain death gets evaluated by the, by the neurological services um, or sometimes by intensivists, um, uh, they, they really primarily focus on a couple of things. First, there has to be um, a cause of the brain death, so they have to understand and have an, an account for why there ought to be the loss of those functions. Mm. Second, there can't be any uh, masking conditions that can get in the way and make it seem like they're brain dead when they're really not. Electrolyte. Electrolytes, yeah. um, uh, sedating medication, uh, they have the, the body temperature, all those have to be taken into account and make sure that you meet all the right criteria in order to be able to be evaluated. Mm. Then it's pretty much a clinical exam that tends to focus on the brain stem itself. So mm. they drip cold water in the ear Calorics, and see if, yeah. there, if there's any anything that happens. Um, they, they prick the eyes to see if there's any pupillary response. Corneal reflex, uh, pupillary um, response, yeah. So, and they essentially move down the brain stem uh, with all these different tests. Uh, finally culminating in what's called the apnea test mm -hmm. where they see if there's any ability to spontaneously breathe on, on your own. Yeah, and by the way, so the way they do that in, in some in environments is they hyper-oxygenate so that the uh, oxygen levels are high, then they'll turn off ventilatory support. It's a whole protocol. And then they see, is there, spontane is there respiration uh, in the setting of rising CO2? Right. And you need to check the CO2 at the end of that uh, time period uh, to see, is it high enough to trigger you know, a respiration? If there's nothing, the assumption is that the brainstem is non-functional. Right, so at that point, you've gone all the way down, showing that there's no brainstem functioning, there's no responsiveness, so the cerebral cortex is not working, and of course, without a functioning uh, brainstem, th there wouldn't be anything there, and that's pretty much what a standard brain death examination consists of. It, it, it raises a challenge because we now know a lot more about brain death than we did when this was first created. Mm. The concept of brain death um, it, it had been something that people had been talking about and utilizing a little bit starting in the late 1950s and into the 1960s. And then uh, uh, in, in 1968 at Harvard, there was an ad hoc committee created, chaired by Henry Beecher, that published an article uh, in uh, JAMA uh, in 1968 set, describing what they called irreversible coma, mm. which was the first standards and the really call to say that we should count patients who meet this neurological state mm. as being dead for the purpose of both withdrawal of life support as well as for the purposes of, of procuring organs. Mm. And then after that, state started sort of slowly to adopt that state by state. It started to be used by hospitals a little bit in practice. And then in 1981, uh, the President's Commission on Bioethical Issues came out with a, uh, a rationale, the first rationale, and said this is something that we should do. And the Uniform Determination of Death Act came out and it became codified. And at this point, it's the law, either statutory law or case law in uh, all 50 states. So in all 50 states, brain death is death. There's one state where if there's a religious objection, which is New Jersey, yeah. there's one state where, they, where if there's a religious objection, then you're not dead um, uh, by by neurological criteria, and you can only die by uh, by cessation of permanent cessation of circulatory function. Got it. And, and because everything's legal in New Jersey, to quote Hamilton. Um, that is fascinating. And the, partially the reason they, they came up with this is because of the organ donation issue, right? And absolutely. Yeah. Partly the organ donation. It also, it's very different today than it was in the 1960s. In the 1960s, when ICU support and life support was relatively new, yeah. people weren't sure how to think about withdrawal of life support. Was mm. that just a refusal of, of treatment, mm. or was that actually killing people? Mm. And so um, in the 1960s, they weren't really sure how to think about it, and so this became a way of saying it's safe to withdraw life support. Of course, we've now we don't worry about those sorts of things as much anymore, and we've had decades, and we've had the Patient Self-Determination Act. But the 1960s, physicians were very worried. In fact, there were a few cases where uh, uh, prosecutors Prosecutors actually prosecuted physicians for withdrawing life support on patients, even if it was in accord with family or patient wishes. Uh, oh, interesting. Even if it was in, in accord. Wow. Yeah, the very famous uh, Karen Ann Wick Quinlan case, yeah. uh, where it was one of the first cases that went to the court, uh, Supreme Court of New Jersey, and the Supreme Court of New Jersey said, yes, absolutely, this is what she would want, and therefore ordered the, her uh, life support to be withdrawn. The hospital actually refused. This is a part of the story that most people don't know. Mm. A lot of people, the myth is they withdrew the ventilatory support and she didn't die and lived for another 10 years. That's actually not what happened. They actually weaned her. And so when they 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 refused to comply with the court order uh -huh. and then were able to successfully wean her over a longer period of time. Oh, and that's why maybe she uh, survived right. for so long. Well, you know, so, so walk me through this. T Terry Schiavo, 
brain dead or vegetative no. state? So she was in a vegetative state. So mm -hmm. it's really important for people to understand mm -hmm. the difference between those things. Sadly, I even see cases where we have chart notes which describe patients as brain dead, even though they're over-breathing the vent or really ca using casual language. So it's really important to understand the difference between a number of different terms. So coma obviously refers to a patient who's unconscious. We sometimes induce uh, a comatose state for patients who are severely injured in order for them to be able to recover. Good example, my uh, co-producer, Logan Stewart, comatose every time you see him on the show. There Other thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, yeah. there we go. Yeah, so, right. Uh, he knows. He watches uh, I, the show. I also teach undergraduates, so I'm used <laughs> to seeing a lot of comatose uh, students later in the quarter. Um, so that's comatose is being unconscious. Um, being um, uh, uh, vegetative means you still have brainstem functions, mm. including wake and, wake and sleep cycles, but you've lost function of the higher brain. Correct. So that's what a vegetative state is. There's a state that's relatively new called the minimally conscious state, mm. and it is very difficult and challenging challenging to distinguish between a minimally conscious state and a vegetative state. Mm -hmm. Because in a minimally conscious state, you are mostly in a vegetative state, but periodically, so you wax and wane, periodically you will be in something more than a vegetative state. Yeah. And, and that makes it very challenging because at the time that the neurologists come by to do the exam, you may be vegetative at that time, mm. but actually demonstrate signs of consciousness at other times. Right, right, And right, so right. Uh, error rates for vegetative state diagnosis are very, very high. I imagine error rates for a lot of these might be high. Not for brain death. Not for brain death. So we're pretty good at brain death. Brain death is much easier okay. to evaluate than vegetative state. Right. And there's actually not really very good, ev there's no evidence really that people do that incorrectly with one exception that's really tricky that I'll, I'll talk about maybe. Um, so as I said earlier, we've learned a lot since 1981 and since 1968. In 1968, 1981, when these laws first were getting put on the books and the Uniform Determination of Death Act was first written, they talk about the death of the entire brain. Mm. And the assumption was that when you had met these neurological criteria, the entire brain, every part of the brain was completely lost. During the 1980s and 90s, it was gradually discovered that sometimes in patients who meet neurological criteria for brain death, that is their brainstem is completely lost functioning, there's no evidence of anything going on in the cerebral cortex, there is sometimes some hypothalamic uh, functioning, yeah, I was gonna some say. pineal gland functioning, some pituitary functioning. I mean, because there's been, there's been uh, cases of uh, girls who have been declared brain dead who have gone through puberty during Absolutely. their brain death period. And yeah. women who have been able to successfully give birth who uh, were mm. brain declared brain dead but mm. were pregnant, they've been able to successfully continue their pregnancy, give birth, give birth. So in those early days, the assumption was somatic death of the body would follow very quickly after right. brain death. Right. We now know that that's not true. Mm. And sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. One of the main factors in how long a body uh, last has to do with whether or not there's any of this sort of uh, residual functioning of these sort of hormone regulatory sections of the brain. But so there's been a lack of fit since since this occurred. There's been a lack of fit between the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which says the entire brain has to be mm -hmm. death, and what the medical practice is and well understood medical practice of saying that you're dead when you've lost your uh, brainstem plus your cerebral cortex. Now in the UK, they decided that they would solve this problem. They did quite a while ago by just saying death equals the loss of the brainstem. Okay. That's what we really evaluate. Just and that. when the brainstem is gone, the person no longer no longer lives. Are, are there any cases, and again, I may be <clears throat> really ignorant asking this question as a physician, I ought to know this. Are there cases of brainstem death in the in the presence of actual cortical function? No. No. So, so higher higher levels have to be dead if lower levels are dead. Correct. Yeah. Um, so the the at least up until now, I think that would be something that would be well established. Mm -hmm. People have questioned whether that's true with Judge Jahai McMath case. So there's a very famous case going on right now. I would say the thing that we've known, certainly up to the Jahai McMath case, um, is that uh, any time that a patient has been diagnosed as brain death mm. and later made any degree of functioning, it was always because the brain death exam was done incorrectly. Mm. The body temperature, you know, somebody drowned and they were they were um, uh, uh, at, a, at a temperature, body temperature was too low. It was always very obvious that it, would, it had been done incorrectly. And, and let, me, let me clarify that point. You are not declared dead, brain dead, until you are warm and dead. Correct. So you must, one of the prerequisites is the body temperature has to be at a certain threshold before you can declare brain death because hypothermia can mimic brain death in certain circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. So it's one of the, so the, so every case up until recently, we, we would say very clearly that there's been no, in fact, I think we can still say there's no clear cases where somebody was accurately diagnosed as brain death, followed the 
not that hard standards to be able to and tests to be able to apply and has had any degree of recovery. And that's why it's so well established as they've been doing it since 1968 pretty mm. routinely mm. at most hospitals, certainly since 1981 at almost every hospital. Mm. So this has become a routine part of care. It's something that's very well established in law, in medicine. It's 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 as as well established as any other other part of medicine. Can I can I tangentially ask you something before we bring this back to organ donation because I think again setting the the base of what is brain death is a key to understanding uh, the donation process. There's a neurosurgeon, I think Boston, who uh, had a meningitis, survived it, and then comes back to tell stories of the afterlife, wrote a book about it. He claims he was effectively brain dead during these experiences he had, but looking at the actual physiology of what was going on there, was he really brain dead that we know? Um, he couldn't have been actually literally brain dead met neurological criteria. It would have been a shockwave throughout the world if that had happened. Right. Um, the one case that we are dealing with right now that's controversial is the case of Jahai McMath. No neurologist or neurosurgeon or any qualified personnel have ever evaluated her for brain death and done an actual clinical exam of her and found her not to be brain dead. So right. she was declared brain dead by mm -hmm. with a number of exams. She's an Oakland girl. She was the Oakland yeah. girl who's now but now uh, a legal bot. Well, now she, now their somatic death of the body occurred recently in New oh, Jersey. Okay. Yeah. But uh, she was maintained in New Jersey for some time. But nobody ever did an, an, a clinical evaluation and found her to be anything other than brain dead. Mm. However, her family made videos of her that seemed to evidence to the family that she was responsive to commands. Mm. And there is at least one retired uh, neurologist who's a respectable neurologist named Alan Schumann, who also is a tireless critic of brain death, he doesn't believe brain death is death, who believes that those videos are evidence that she actually was not brain dead later and that she actually was exhibiting uh, f uh, significant function. Mm. Now, I know other people who have looked at some of those same videos and come to different conclusions and mm. don't think they showed that. Mm. And of course, one of the challenging things is that you've got people making videos and that there's you know a short number of videos and we don't know how many they were. You don't know everything that was gone in the backgrounds. You know, I once saw a video of a talking dog, but I don't think it showed that there actually was a dog that talks. So. I once saw a brain dead rapper actually rap. His name is Lil Pump. Uh, and uh, he is clinically brain dead, yet fully rappable, which is amazing. Now, 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 speaking of that, you were talking about videos and talking about how you can uh, misperceive brain death sometimes as well. Uh, it's pretty rare. It only it, the, the 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 vegetative states are easy to miss. Yeah, brain death. There's no. It, it's much easier to do. The only mistakes are when you when there's been masking conditions. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. people have missed that, and they just need to make sure that they don't do that. So one thing I want to tell uh, nurses, family, people at the bedside when they see a, a loved one or a patient who has been declared brain dead, and they say, "But wait, there are some." distal reflexes, there's some uh, fasciculations of the muscles, there's some twitching of the face. It turns out, uh, according to my understanding of this, you can have these spinal reflexes. They are not brain reflexes. So they're not actually arguing that the brain is functional. They're saying that spinal cord may be functional. So actually, if you check cranial nerve reflexes, pupillary reflexes, corneal reflexes, gag reflexes, those are gone. Right. These are the function of a dead brain that is disinhibited now in the setting of spinal reflexes. Exactly. Yeah, and people get very confused. Of he course. moved, he twitched his finger, he right. did this, yeah. And of course, and that's that's really the debate with Jahai McMath, when the family says something and there's twitching, is that evidence of right. volition or is that just spinal reflexes? Right. Uh, uh, when you watch Schumann go through those videos, you see her, the family asking her to move and you see some movements that he says, those are not real, those are not volitional, those are just spinal reflexes, but this other movement of the fingers, mm. those are real. Mm. But then you talk to other physicians who look at the same thing and, and say, say no, it's all involutional. Yeah, and, right. you and you can't really tell. It's like reading tea leaves at that point. It's very yeah, hard. You have to do an actual clinical exam at the bedside. So to date, there's not been a single case of a patient who is accurately declared brain death where they met the criteria, were brain dead, and somebody's done a clinical exam and found there's any change in that status. You don't and come back from the dead. You don't come yeah. back from the dead. And, yeah. what, and think about what it really means in terms of what we really care about. Uh, and when you think about death, the person, who they were, their memories, their personality, their ability to interact with people, their ability to interact with the world, all of those irreversibly lost. You're a philosopher by training. Correct. 
How does that inform your understanding of brain death? Actually, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, it's actually quite a philosophical debate. Yeah. So uh, I don't think it should bear on the practical issues in a way. So I think it really is more philosophical, though a lot of physicians are involved in this debate. But we're, we, we, uh, for the 50th anniversary of the 1968 Harvard report, we just had a big meeting about brain death and the dead donor rule. That sounds like a great party. Yeah. <laughs> what'd you what'd you put in the punch? <laughs> yeah. A, yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um uh but it, but it, it really is a very interesting thing. The everyone recognizes the sort of tension between the UDDA and the fact that there is this little bit of hypothalamic functioning. There are some people who say that um we should have a broader definition of death. Mm. Um, that uh, that uh, there's just a, a very well-known philosopher and ethicist named Bob Veach who's argued that if you've lost irreversibly lost higher cognitive functioning, so everything about your memories and everything that you that made you who you are mm. has been ir irreversibly lost, then you should be declared dead dead then. But from a practical point of view, at least my view is. That's the wrong way to think of it because it's just not a very practical line to draw. Right, right. As I already said, we don't aren't very good at distinguishing vegetative states and and minimally conscious states. Right. Moreover, for it to be permanent, if you have traumatic brain injury, it takes a full year of being in a vegetative state before we can say that it's permanent. Yeah. Even in an anoxic brain injury, it's three months. Mm -hmm. So it's just not a very useful practical, practical line to draw. And in a way, that's really what we're doing. We kind of want to think that the lines that we draw in medicine are carving nature at the joints at these sort of name natural kinds. Mm -hmm. Very few parts of our classification scheme actually do that. Uh, our nosologies, when we say you've got the flu, when we divide up the diseases and illness and have our classification scheme, it's based on practical things. It's based on the real world, but it's also a conventional classification. Sometimes we divide up things by signs and symptoms. Sometimes we define them by the underlying causes of the disease. There's actually a history to it, and there's you know there's a lot, and there's sometimes debates. The DSM has gone through many oh, yeah. revisions and debates about how we define this. The line between life and death is a lot like that. It's a line that needs to be practically drawn, just like the line at the beginning of life. Where do we decide that you're a constitutional person entitled mm -hmm. to constitutional mm -hmm. rights? Mm -hmm. Where do we decide that the law is going to draw the line that you, that your loved one gets uh, death benefits? Mm. Where are we going to draw the line that says that she can re he or she can remarry? Mm -hmm. There's all these practical things that go into death behaviors that and, and social and legal factors that are all intertwined in ways that are, as well as all these medical factors for figuring out where to draw the right line. The advantage of, of the brain death line is everything that made somebody who they were, we know is irreversibly gone, lost irreversibly in brain. and it can be accurately done in a fairly, in a, in a very well, well done manner with no false positives. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and we know that it's a really good, good place that we can actually practically draw the line. And by now it's very well entrenched legally, medically, and socially. And that's why you know, we wrote, uh, some colleagues and I wrote a piece in New England journal called, uh, um, accepting brain death. And why at this point we said, you know, at this point it's really time to really say, this is the this right is way to the draw right the line. Way to, and this becomes so important for organ donation it also becomes important for families to be able to let go absolutely it's just uh, it's yeah it, it's there's no decisions to be made it, at that it, point. exactly at that point if the physicians have 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 made the assessment of brain death i think that's a pretty final assessment you can get a second opinion if they agree it's a pretty final assessment the one thing one thing and this is a philosophical question and i really want to bring it back to organ donation but i'm also interested because i have you here uh the difference between awareness, consciousness, perception, and uh, the personality functions, the thinking, the cognitive functions, all of that. Do you think these are separate uh, phenomenon? In other words, can someone even with brain death, theoretically, could there be a uh, persistent awareness that has nothing to do with senses and perception? I think the consensus of the neurological community is the answer is no. Got it. So, uh, um, you know, it, there's a certain amount of uncertainty uh, uh, around anything about what happens after you die. But uh, I think the level of uncertainty in this case is no more or less than the uncertainty we have about death event from any other, other way. And the tricky part about awareness, consciousness, is that you cannot determine whether something is conscious without it more or less telling you. It's a subjective experience. 
Even yeah. the Turing test and these kind of things are not. But again, in these cases, you've got no electrical activity in the brain. I, this is more of a philosophical, less about brain death and more about how do you even determine if something is aware at all? How do I not know the microphone we're recording with has some no, I, consciousness? I yeah. think where that actually becomes an even more tricky issue is the other def definition of death, which is, uh, you might think that it's the other definition of death, which is cardiovascular death or circuitory death, is that. more well-established. Yeah. It's actually probably much more controversial. Oh, tell me about because, this. Yeah. Um, uh, which is another place where we sometimes get organs. Less, right. less so, but sometimes. Right. Right. Um, uh, that's um, usually when we don't, usually with outside of the context of organ procurement, we don't really care exactly where the line is. So, right, if you think about it, a patient who's full code in the ICU and their heart stops, when do you say they're dead? Mm -hmm. Well, when they are tired of trying the code or they think it isn't going to work anymore. Yeah. 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, sometimes it depends on who the physicians are. It might be 20 minutes, it might be 40 minutes, depends on the team, depends on the patient. Anyway, so there can be a long time. On the other hand, if a patient has a no code, has a DNR order, and they're not going to attempt resuscitation, when the heart stops, the patient's declared dead basically just as soon as you can get uh, a physician into the room to, yeah. to, to make it the declaration. Yeah. could be a very short period of time. For adults, there's no case of spontaneous restarting of the heart after about one or two minutes. Mm. And therefore, in a totally arbitrary way, the Institute of Medicine said, we should say that it's five minutes after death. But they <laughs> we'll just give it a little two, padding. <laughs> but they said two to five is all defensible. I see. And there's variation in practice between two and five minutes. Right, and, uh, when to call death. Uh, yeah. When to call death. And there've been a couple of cases where because pediatric uh, newborn hearts are so rare, there was a Denver protocol where they decided to really push the envelope yeah. and they declared death, death after 75 seconds. Uh, for a couple of uh, uh, pediatric cases so that they could, and in fact, were successful at procuring hearts oh, that they could wow. then transplant. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But again, 75 seconds in a newborn, uh, I don't know if that would be, if that might have been within the range where spontaneous restarting would have been possible. So it's, again, if you think you have to have irreversible cessation, yeah. and there's a big debate about whether is it irreversible, is it permanent, how long do you have to wait? Because if you wait too long, you'll have too much ischemic damage and you won't be able to get, get organs. Get organs. Now, now, so let me, again, I'm gonna rehash some of this and clarify for people, uh, just because it gets to be a lot. Um, Brain death and declaration of that is one thing. And it's one way, once you've declared brain death, if the person's on a ventilator and being supported, you can procure organs for donation. The other way that's rarer is circulatory death. So heart stops, there's a code, etc. And when you declare death after that, we were just talking about that piece and then how about the organ donation piece of that? Yeah, so if the organ donation piece of that, you have to die in just, again, just the right way, which is you have to be close to death on a ventilator mm. and have made the decision to withdraw life support by the family and, mm. they've, and the patient, and they've agreed that they're gonna be a donor. In those cases, what they do is they typically send the patient to the, either to an IC, uh, to, a, to an OR or to right outside the OR. Yeah. They with, get the patient prepared for surgery, they withdraw the ventilator, and then they basically wait. If a patient doesn't expire, their heart doesn't stop within a fairly short period of time, then the ischemic damage is too great and they're not a candidate. So uh -huh. usually they wait certainly no more than an hour uh -huh. and sometimes even after half an hour. I so see. the heart has to stop very, very quickly. So they have to be good enough shape that their organs are good quality, but in bad enough shape that when you withdraw the ventilator, they will die very, very quickly. And then what they do in those rare cases where that works out, they withdraw the ventilator, their heart stops, they wait five minutes, they declare the patient dead, then they go into the, into the OR and they begin to procure the organs. Usually in that process, you can't get hearts yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you don't get as many organs. They're not usually as good quality, right. um, so it doesn't work quite as well, and uh, um, uh, because of the ischemic damage. Now, just because it's hard, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be an organ donor, because you need the biggest possible pool Absolutely. to draw from, since it's so hard to get organs. Well, here, here's a question: Someone is killed, declared dead at the scene in a motorcycle accident. Can they get cornea, tendons, these sort of less? friable organs? Potentially, if they can get to them within an hour or, or two. So mm. um, our system actually separates solid organ transplantation from tissue and cornea Got procurement. It. Got it. Um, so there's, uh, they're somewhat separated. Um, you have to die in just the right way to be a solid organ donor. Right. Um, it's actually much easier to be a, uh, a tissue or, or cornea donor. And so if you, you can do that even up to usually a couple of hours after death. And that's important too. So again, there, there, there's some subtle, there's some nuance to that even. So, okay, so circulatory death, brain death, and the reason why those are so important is because of something called the dead donor rule, mm. which says that we can't take uh, life-saving organs from people uh, while they're still alive. 
Oh. And there's some that's a very basic touchstone in the ethics right. of organ transplantation, though there are some people who are questioning whether we should give this up. Mm. So if you it, it's challenging because if you've got somebody who says, I really want to be an organ donor, they while they were doing well, they wanted to be an organ donor, their family says this was really important to them. Now they're unconscious, permanently unconscious in the ICU, mm. they're dying, they would want to donate their organs, but we know that if we remove the ventilator, it's gonna be hours to days before they pass away. And the family's gonna do that because they think this isn't a life that they would find worth living. Right. We can't take organs from that patient. Oh, and the wow. family says, why don't you just, while they're on the ventilator, go in and kill them by taking their organs. Mm. But the dead donor rule says you can't uh, kill people by the organ procurement process. So the only organs that somebody who's alive right. can donate are things like kidneys where you won't die as a result of donating them. Right. You can't donate uh, organs that are necessary to sustain life without violating the dead donor rule. And that's because that's just a special case of active euthanasia. Got so it. in the same way that we can't actively euthanize patients in all 50 states that's illegal, Right. This would technically, to procure organs and kill somebody by organ procurement would technically be homicide under the laws in all 50 So states. I could donate my spleen. Now, I could be a living spleen donor. Okay. Because, you know, there's somebody out there that needs my spleen because for absolutely no reason. Just understand that that's how altruistic I am, is I will give an organ that nobody needs to somebody who doesn't need it. What about your, do you need both of your kidneys? Okay, now you're pushing it, Bob. Because <laughs> you could be a kidney donor. That's true. Living kidney donor, partial liver donor. Uh, what are other living uh, donor stuff? That uh, you there's actually donor? only one place that does this, but there's a small bowel live donor program in the I, Chicago area. I have heard about this. Yeah, yeah. They don't want my small bowel because they'll get a case of the glutens. I will guarantee you that. So, so back to the back to the ethics of all this, um, and away from the glutens because that's just unethical to even talk about on this show. Uh, now you're talking about um, the sort of criteria that it, it's it's hard to be able to don't you have to live in the right way you have to die in the right way, yep. which means we need a big po uh, po uh, pile of donors a big pool right. of donors. Now, what happens if, um, let's say in California, I'm a registered donor with the DMV or I'm on an organ registry thing and and I die in the right way. And my family comes up and they're like, you're not taking his organs. We don't want that. So that's actually a really big change that's happened in policy at the OPO in just the last handful of years. So, um, uh, and again, this is for brain death, not DCD, because DCD depends on the decision to withdraw life support. For DCD, the families still have control over that because they could always say, well, then you can't withdraw life support. Yeah, and DCD stands for, again, donation after circulatory death. Donation after circulatory death. So with a second case we talked about. Yeah. But for brain dead cases, if you're declared, once you're declared brain dead, if you've done what's called a first person consent by registering to be an organ donor, then uh, the OPO basically has control over that decision. And they've made a decision in the last few years that they inform the families that they're going to procure the organs, but they don't ask for permission. Right. And if the family objects, that's up to the OPO to make that decision. I see. But most OPOs have been moving in the direction of saying that they are going to move forward with the decision of the patient yes. and do the procurement against the wishes of the family. I see. So, so, and just to clarify, OPO is Organ Procurement Organization. Sure, yes, the yeah. Organ Procurement Organization. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. the country, the, our, our organ uh, transplant system uh, under the National Organ Transplant Act that was set up in the early 80s, our, our, our country is divided up into 256 different organ procurement organization areas that um, that fall within uh, 11 broader uh, or, or organ transplant regions. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, so uh, so so a lot of the actual work of what's called the United Network of Organ Sharing is actually done through the particular organ procurement organizations. Got it. Yeah. And they're not like congressional districts. They don't divide up the populations at all equally. So here in California, for example, we have a huge organ procurement organization representing um, uh, greater Los Angeles, another one representing San Diego. Ours is uh, geographically the biggest. It represents almost all of Northern California, going all the way about down to, uh, I think, down to Bakersfield. And it even takes in a little bit of Nevada. Mm. Uh, it's called Donor Network West. So mm. that's our organ procurement organization. And then there's a really tiny little organ procurement organization representing uh, Sacramento and Davis. Got it. So, oh, and we'll get back to this because this becomes important in terms of actually getting on the list and how it might be possible for there to be some inequity. Absolutely.
Yeah. So back to this thing. So the OPOs can can then, if you're registered, you've given consent, they can override the family's objections to uh, organ procurement. Correct. Right. Okay. Got it. So and they're making those decisions. It's not the transplant team. It's not the treating physician. Right. So there's no conflict there. No, absolutely. And we yeah. try as much as possible to keep like the physicians at Stanford, the physicians at the hospitals, should play absolutely no role whatsoever in either discussing organ transplantation, dealing with it. It's really the the organ procurement organization that really comes in, talks to the family, to, deals with the patient or the family, and does the actual procurement process. So when I did my uh, my piece on organ donation, I might have said something to the effect of, um, you know, uh, richness, wealth, is not what the OPOs look at when they're uh, distributing, you know, when they're, when they're deciding on who's going to get an organ that's just become available. How, t- 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 tell me the nuance of this with, say, Steve Jobs as an example. Yeah, so that makes it complicated. It's really Mm -hmm. important to note that there are two parts to this process. First is the process of being listed to be eligible to be getting an organ. And then there's the allocation process. So if we talk about the allocation process first, if you manage to get onto the listing, uh, uh, onto the list at all, then it's entirely determined by objective criteria. Now, those objective criteria include geography, how many organs are there relative to the population in the area where you are, because organs tend to be distributed uh, geographically, biological match, and then different organs have different criteria that weigh different different uh, va- ethical values in a way in different ways. So equity, equal access, those are often done on the basis of things like first come, first served or wait times, which used to be how we did kidneys. Right. They often do the principle of rescue. So we give it often to the people who are sickest. So livers, we do it based on MELD scores. So we give it to the people who need it the most. Right. And then also um, uh, utility, who, who benefits the most. So the kidney Younger. transport, for example, we shifted from one that really focused almost entirely on equity and it was just first come first served to recognizing that that was not making really great uses of the resource because uh, young uh, kidney transplant recipients might be receiving an organ from a very old donor where that organ's not going to last that long mm. nearly as long as the patient will and they'll have to have several transplants mm. and the other end you might have somebody who's older getting an uh, getting a kidney from a very young person and that mm. kidney might last 30 years but the patient's only going to live an average of 10 years mm. so to make that system more uh, uh, yield more utility and get more bang for your buck as it were from the from the from the uh, organ transplant, they shifted from first come first serve, essentially a wait time criteria, to now they give the top twenty percent of kidneys to the top twenty percent of uh, of donors who are going to benefit the most from mm-hmm. it, and then the rest are distributed based on age plus or minus fifteen years to get better matches between donors and recipients, so that you make better use of it. Although there's a little bit of principle of rescue too, where patients who are highly sensitized and at risk of not being able to be eligible anymore and falling off the list yeah they go straight to the top i see yeah 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 so it's not as simple as a tinder swipe left correct right and it's not as simple as a residency match it's a complicated algorithm that it takes all those things into account that have evolved over years and have changed somewhat over years. change over some and they're different from organ system to organ system right so kidney is different than a lung is different than a heart is different than a heart lung absolutely right got it uh got it uh so so that being said that's one system so how do you rank people on the transplant right and now and that as i said the good news about that is it's relatively objective so that's a really good thing about it how if it's based on how sick you are are, there are objective numbers to determine how sick you are. Yeah. But geography is sort of a tricky issue because, uh, it, 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 as we said before, it's not like congressional districts, which means that there can be tremendous difference in wait time. So mm-hmm. here in the Bay Area, as part of Donor Network West, the average wait time for a cadaver kidney is about eight years and rising. Mm. If you go to UC Davis, just up the road, it's about three and a half years for wow. a cadaver kidney. Yeah. If you need a liver, you have to be very, very sick. We typically transplant patients who need... Um, uh, liver transplants typically get in that at least the high 30s and often into the 40s with their MELD scores. Yeah. In other parts of the country, they would actually take you off the list with those kinds of MELD scores because you're so sick. It means your outcomes aren't going to be as good. And they usually transplant people when they're in the getting MELD scores in their 20s and maybe even low 20s. So there's a lot of variation. Now, what that means is if you've got the means, you can be listed in as many uh, organ procurement organizations and in as many centers as you can afford to uh, go to have yourself evaluated, have them as your physicians, have the coverage to pay for it at all these different places, and then be able to fly there within 24 hours. So if you have the means, you can have yourself listed at places, even if you live here in the Bay Area, where we have a terribly long wait time. California is 
terribly long wait times for liver transplant, both in yeah. Southern California and in the Bay Area. Yeah. And Davis doesn't have a liver transplant program anymore. Got it. And if you, but if you go to uh, to you know to Nashville, Tennessee, um, they have a much shorter wait time. There are different places of the country where they have much shorter wait times, and you can look around and say, look, I really want to get my care. So if you've got enough resources to be able to get your health care anywhere in the country you want and can fly anywhere you want within 24 hours, when you find out that an organ is available, you're much, much more likely to, 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 to get an organ. And so this is where, uh, when I talked about um, uh, the wealthy being you know, not preferred necessarily for organ, this is the sort of nuance around that. So Steve Jobs, although living in the Bay Area, got his organ at Vanderbilt. Correct. Right. And he might have still, he might have died on the transplant list here. He almost certainly would have died on the list if he'd been in, staying in the Bay Area before getting his transplant. And now presumably, by the way, so he had pancre- neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer, and presumably this was because he had liver involvement of the cancer and needed a transplant for that. It wasn't because he had other liver disease, to right. my understanding. So uh, can you violate HIPAA? Here's an ethical. Can you violate HIPAA after someone's already deceased? Uh, uh, HIPAA, uh, uh, Yes. So HIPAA applies even after you've deceased. The the common rule does not. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So that's one way the system can be nuanced. What about being listed at a different level of acuity? So what if he's got a concierge doc who lists him at a higher MELD score? A MELD score is a a measure of sickness in liver patients. Well, so there is some gaming of the system that sometimes happens where Mm -hmm. physicians will do things to try and make their patients seem sicker than they are so that they get higher on the list. And then the system responds by changing the criteria so to get rid of gaming. Right. I think there's probably still some gaming going on, but they've gotten pretty good at trying to uh, to avoid that as much as possible. Mm. You don't get to just say what somebody's MELD score is. They have to. It's a combination of different uh, objective aspects, criteria. Uh, objective criteria. Mm-hmm. Now, again, if you decide you're not going to ventilate this patient as well, they might get a little sicker. If you don't do this, they might get a little sicker. Mm-hmm. There are trade-offs there, obviously. Cause, Feed uh, them a pure vegan diet, they'll die instantly. So, you know, that'll get them right. There you go. Right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't, so there's subtlety to it, but it's getting better. And again, yeah, and, I think- and, and a real effort to make it as objective as, quite, as possible. So I think on the whole, this geographical aspect creates some inequality for people who are more wealthy. But on the whole, I think for the allocation process, it's a objective criteria. They do a good, relatively good job. It doesn't mean it's not value laden. Doesn't mean there aren't huge debates that go on about what the right criteria should be and how we ought to change it. Mm. But it's on the whole, they do a pretty good job there. Most of the inequality actually in the system comes not from the allocation process, but who even gets on the list. Now that's what we should talk about next. So you do a lot of work in this space and I think it's fascinating. We were talking a little bit before the show. Tell me about this. So it's it's it really is fascinating. We the very first t- cases we got it, I got interested in this was because we had a lot of really interesting issues with pediatric transplant cases. Mm. We had some kids who were developmentally impaired and trying to make decisions about whether they should be listed or not. And different teams seemed to make decisions differently. So I started to do surveys of transplant programs about how they make those decisions. We had a really tough case with a kid whose parents refused to vaccinate them, and knowing that about half of kids for medical reasons, get incomplete vaccination. Yeah. But would we take that into account if they were uh, not being vaccinated, not for medical reasons, but because of parental refusal? And wow. so we wanted doing a survey of that and looking at it. And what we kept finding is it's all over the map. That yeah. different, that, And that's a real justice issue because it means a patient in one place will get listed for a transplant right. and in another place they won't. They won't. And, and the same patient. The same same patient, patient, same yeah. patient, same condition. Yeah, and we also worried about whether also some of the decisions were made based on bias. With the developmentally delayed kids, for example, the emerging data suggests that actually those kids do pretty well on transplant. Mm. In some ways, they do better than other patients because they're a little more externally severe, ma- managed. Ma- externally yeah. managed, mm-hmm. and kids have this tendency to turn into teenagers, and teenagers tend not to be compliant. So, um, whereas That's if they're more dependent, point. they yeah. actually sometimes do a little bit better. Yeah. So, uh, so some of it may just be bias, and so we were really shocked. We had this one one scenario that we published that we internally in-house called the Americans with a Disability Violation Case to see what people would say. And we found that 25% of solid organ transplant, given a case with no other comorbidities, but the patient had fragile X in addition to the disease that was causing their uh, organ failure. And it varied from uh, that one we did heart, uh, liver, and kidneys. And uh, um, uh, 25% of solid organ transplant said that they would not list a kid because they they were reading at a second grade level. So they were functioning independently. They were were in a school. 
school. They were in a group home. And they wouldn't and list them. And they wouldn't list them. Wow. And so that's a really interesting ethical question. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a big challenge. Mm. And so we've been doing, we've, we haven't published this yet, but we were working up for publication some uh, survey findings. We just did a very large survey of both adult and pediatric transplant um, programs. Uh, got, uh, we surveyed 650 programs. We got over 350 responses. So we've been collating the data and putting this into these different papers. But the one that we're about to submit that I think is really interesting, we were looking at some different other kinds of social and behavioral aspects of decision-making. And we looked at um, uh, 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 undocumented immigrant status. And that was fascinating because it worked out in great timing that a study was just done looking at outcomes of undocumented immigrants who actually get transplants. And, uh, um, And undocumented immigrants who receive transplants actually do slightly better than average. And these are Medicaid patients. So these are poor, undocumented immigrants who are on Medicaid, and yet they do better than average on transplantation. And uh, so given that the outcomes are good, what reason would there be not to list them? So we looked at the actual data about what decisions are, and we were shocked to find out only about 15% of transplant programs around the country considered it irrelevant to transplant listing decisions, and the rest was about evenly split between programs that would uh, consider it a relative contraindication and almost 50% of programs that would be an absolute contraindication to transplant, that they would not list a patient who's an undocumented immigrant. Half the programs in the country won't list you. The other, uh, a a good proportion, 15 of them don't, 15 of them don't care and then that other proportion is kind of like well it's a relative contraindication so how it's such variability such variability is it do you think it's politically motivated do you think it's just a different committee i think there's bias you know Mm -hmm. when you have a unlike the allocation process the more we have this done on a non-evidence base and you just have a group of people sitting around a room saying should we list this patient the more Mm -hmm. likely you are to have different kinds of biases and i've talked to people so here in the bay area since in california we actually cover that with state funding so it's it's not because there's not funding available to pay for this Mm -hmm. and yet um you know at stanford it's an it's it's irrelevant for listing for kidney for liver um for heart uh, we go up the road to UCSF and CPMC, and it's an absolute contraindication for some mm. of those organs. Mm. And mm. I mm. talk to some of the folks at those places. They say, well, they won't be able to afford this. The what if they rejection get drugs. Well, the direction drugs? Right. What, even though that's covered. Right. Uh, what if they get deported? Right. So they have stories to tell about why they think the outcomes will be worse. Right. But the data doesn't bear that out. Right. And that's, uh, that's why I think that really is a really real problem. If you're going to discriminate against people based on social characteristics... Right. The only way that you could justify doing that is if it's well established and the data supports that it actually makes a difference in outcomes. Okay, so let me ask you then. So then let's let's do that. Let's uh, go through that mental exercise and see what data there is. So people will say uh, Medicaid uh, undocumented patients have not paid into the system here yet they are coming and potentially displacing a US citizen who has paid into the system whatever that system is uh, whether it's Medicaid whether it's private insurance whether it's Medicare and taking their organs. So instead of taking my jobs, they took my organs. Yeah, except the problem is that just turns out not to be true because uh, these undocumented immigrants are also eligible to, eligible to be donors. They actually donate at much higher rates than they receive organs. Whoa, 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 whoa. what? So they donate organs at higher rates, about tenfold. So they so they donate about ten times as many organs as they receive on average. They also pay more into uh, Medicaid taxes than they receive back in Medicaid benefits. How are they paying Medicaid taxes? They're working and they're they're paying working them. and they're paying taxes. And they donate ten times more organs than they receive. Absolutely. We ought to just let everybody in just to take their organs. Uh, so, well, did I do that ethics right? Uh, I'm not, I think there are certainly limits to that. There's certainly some transplant tourism that happens where wealthy people from other countries come in to get transplants. Oh, is that um, right? Yeah. And they often pay at a much higher premium. And so there are some transplant programs that like having, there's some programs that were known to specialize in Saudi transplantation. Exactly. You have a whole wing, the Al-Bayhad Syed wing with. There there actually are programs that are like that. Mm. Um, But, um, uh, but, but on the whole for undocumented immigrants who are living here, they're residing in this country, they're paying taxes. They're living here like everybody else. They donate. There was some interesting qualitative work that some researchers did talking to people about transplantation who were undocumented, Mm. who said, oh, they'll take our organs. They just won't give them to our loved ones. Wow. So this, you see, it's always more nuanced than the news is going to tell you. So if the news is going to report this, it's going to be very black or white one way. If it's Fox News, they'll say this. If it's MSNBC, they'll say this. But then when you actually look at the data, the, the calculus 
is more nuanced always. And this is something we say on the show all the time. That's why it's great to have a bioethicist who does this for a living, who's philosophically trained, because the world is this shade of gray and you have to be able to process that. And that's why we don't often take these uh, very black or white stances here. We kind of go, well, what are the ins and outs of this? And you know, we may have strong opinions. Like I'm sure there are a lot of uh, fans of the show who are gonna be like, no, it's not okay to get, and then there'll be a lot of fans who be like, it's the just and equitable thing to do, especially in the light of the data. And there's some who will be somewhere in the middle, but you, you gotta go through this exercise. Well, and you can see that play out with different states' uh, legal systems. So California and Illinois use state funds to provide uh, transplant benefits to uh, undocumented immigrants. Many other states won't provide those funds, and federal law prohibits the mm. use of uh, Medicaid, uh, federal Medicaid, federal orders, Medicaid, right, uh, or uh, on on undocumented immigrants. And right. so, most states, except Illinois and California, don't allow those dollars to flow. Although they will pay for at least some dialysis at some states. Others only provide emergency dialysis. Exactly. And there was just a, a work of a Colorado doc on that, uh, looking at uh, physician burnout in the face of the fact that. Uh, undocumented immigrants have to get emergency dialysis in uh, Colorado, say, but they cannot get it uh, on a on a elective basis, and so they get so sick they'll sit out in the parking lot and eat a banana or you know high potassium foods so that they can trigger a level that will get them dialyzed, and it's it's difficult for the physicians caring for them. Absolutely, yeah. and it's a crazy system. Uh, right. California and and Illinois, I think, are on the right track, given that these people. Get, tend to get jobs, pay taxes, pay into Medicaid, mm -hmm. giving them back the Medicaid benefits that they deserve. Mm. It, they're part of our medical community. They're covered under EMTALA. Having a system where we sort of cover them and sort of don't makes absolutely no sense. Got it, got it. Okay, so that's good. So now we've talked about uh, brain death. We've talked about organ donation, both in brain death and, and uh, donation after circulatory death. We've talked about the ins and outs of, of, of the wealth inequality component. We've talked about the social inequality and uh, uh, the work you're doing on that in terms of organ donation. Other aspects of organ stuff that you think are important to talk about? Um, well, the inequalities around listing are really tricky. I'll just put, I want to put a plug in. A colleague of mine developed something called SIPAT, the Stanford Integrated Psychosocial Assessment Tool. Hmm. So I think trying to make the listing process as objective as the allocation process is, I think, a really important step towards trying to, to, to have a just allocation or mm -hmm. just transplant system. Hmm. And so I think we are, we, you know, it's not perfect. But, it's, but there's an attempt to try and find what evidence is out there, get more evidence, and to compare it against uh, outcomes on an, and to tweak it on a constant basis. Mm. It's pretty good. And so if SIPAT, it can be heartbreaking, but if SIPAT says this patient's you know social situation, which is correlated, there is a justice issue even here, right? Because if you're poor, you don't have a car, you live in the Central Valley, it's hard for you to make doctor's appointments, mm -hmm. um, you're much more likely to, to have organ failure. And right. that's your graph failure. So you're failure. gonna get there, yeah. And so mm -hmm. so it's, and, and we know there are things that are highly correlated with socioeconomic status that, that have to do with whether you're gonna be a better or worse uh, transplant candidate. Right, yep. And that's hard to avoid. We can try and do what we can to mitigate those things, but it's there. But if you've got actually objective criteria that say, right now this patient is not a good candidate for all of these reasons, mm. and then we'll do our best to ameliorate them, mm. but if we can't, it's heartbreaking. Uh, I've had I had a case once with a patient from the um, who was like a, a poor immigrant family. He was the first. You know, he was a U.S. citizen, but he was the first uh, person in his family who was likely to be able to go to college. He was like almost 18 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been born with cardiomyopathy. He's uh, um, you know, and he but he had done really well. He was doing well at school. He had a girlfriend. He was looking forward to going to college. And then December of senior year, heart failure, just mm -hmm. terrible, terrible outcome. And he did an active suicide attempt, sort of acting out because of everything that was happening. But an active suicide attempt is a very powerful contraindication, oh, contraindication to transplant. And yeah. then this family also had some really major social uh, issues in terms of social support for him that made him also a very, uh, not mm. a great candidate. And having to tell him as he begged for life and said, please, I didn't know the consequences of my suicide attempt. And he's like begging, please list me for transplant. Mm. It's very hard to sit there and say, you know, the data says you're really a, not a great candidate and you're much more likely to do graft failure. But sadly, we do not have anywhere near enough hearts to go around. And if he gets a heart, somebody else doesn't. Yeah. And so you have to have cutoffs, but you need to make it, at least in his case, you can live with it because you know you did something objectively correct. 
If you do it just based on your heartstrings, if you do it just based on your gut of who you think is going to do well, who isn't, it's just an invitation for prejudice and bias in the in the transplant system. So so I applaud my colleagues for developing SciPad and uh, for really trying to to develop a process and a system to try and make this as objective as possible. Mm. You know, th th this th this idea of being objective in the face of very emotional decisions. And we talk a lot on the show about, you know, this uh, uh, distinction John Haidt, the psychologist, makes about elephant and writer, this idea that the elephant is our sort of emotional, intuitive brain. And it can, Kahneman makes this distinction as well, the right. slow thinking, fast thinking right. parts of the brain. And then our writer, which does this, the, the math and the calculations and how the writer's quickly overwhelmed and just trusts the gut. In this case, trusting the gut can lead to an outcome that is objectively and emotionally bad, but it will feel bad when you do it. Right. Like that gentleman you just talked about. Oh, it was yeah. terrible. I had a, a, some, a fellow in clinical ethics service who was shadowing me and who loved clinical ethics. She loved sitting on every case. That was the first time I ever saw her say, like, I do not want to go into that room and tell him that the answer is no. Wow. And she just did not want to go who in Who had with me to the tell team. him that? Uh, it was a combination of the, of the cardiologist from the listing service team and me. The two of us went in and had the conversation with them. Wow. And, you know, and the, so... As a bioethicist then, as a medical bioethicist, how do you ever have occasions where you go home and you have trouble sleeping or you have issues where you're... Yeah, well, trained in philosophy, I like to think of myself as a brain in a vat and just a logic machine. But yeah, yeah. of course, we all, I think all of us have, you know, there are cases that are hard to process. There are times, you know, I usually try and use my time driving home. I have a little bit of a commute. Yeah. And so I usually get my crying out of the way when I'm driving oh, home and then I don't yeah. have to deal with it anymore yeah. when I get home. I do but, it in the shower. That way the oh. wife can't tell you've done it because oh, you're already all wet. That's yeah. that's clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we all have to have those things that are hard, but, you know, it's like everything else. I'm amazed the, the palliative care docs, you know, what they do. I work very closely with oh, our palliative yeah, care yeah, service yeah, yeah. and what they do. And I think in a way it would be even harder if your goal is, in a way our goal is to try and make sure we're making good decisions and that we're being as ethical as possible. Sometimes that's empowering patients and sometimes it leads to a lot of terrible things but and death. But at least we, we, we know what our sort of goal is, and mm. we try to achieve that in every case if we can. And I think palliative care, where they're trying to aim at a better death, you know, they feel like they're doing something good. I think it would be hardest for the oncologist or the intensivist, because their goal is to get the patient better. Yeah. And so every time a patient dies there, they see it as a failure. A failure and I think, yeah. that's, I think that's really hard for them. So. Yeah, yeah. The nice thing is, in palliative care, that's why I've become such a fan in recent years, you know, being through this career in hospital medicine. It, you can actually almost always accomplish your goal if it's to reduce suffering. You can almost always accomplish it because we have those tools. Absolutely, and that's why I think it's 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 very it's very it it, it for me it feels morally correct. Uh, ethics aside, it, it that it, it resonates with me. And so if I were I always say if I was going to go back into full time clinical practice, it would be palliative care. Um, but uh, you know so. So God, I mean, we've hit almost an hour talking about organs. That's amazing. I hope you guys are still with us. This is a podcast too, so don't forget. If you want to share it, you can listen to it on iTunes and do it on your commute while you're crying, because uh, it's a good it's a good way to spend your time. Because this discussion has been amazing. I, I want to leave. Well, I'm going to leave asking you anything you want to discuss. But I I have a quick question because this came up quite a bit. The Charlie Guard case in Great Britain. We did a few shows on that and. Uh, there's a lot of sort of charged emotion around it. You know, what's your sort of quick take on that scenario? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So uh, here in California, we're one of the few states that actually has a futility law on the books. But the futility law we have on the books, which corresponds to the AMA, Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs standards for how you should handle these cases, and the American Thoracic Society standards for how to handle it, which is you have to give them a time-limited opportunity to find another institution, and if they can find another institution, then you should uh, facilitate a transfer, mm. and you can only withdraw against the wishes of the patient's surrogates or family, uh, especially in a pediatric case, if it's medically ineffective and there's nobody else who's willing to take the patient. Mm. In the Charlie Guard case and the other case that came up, there actually was another institution willing to take the patient. Right. And so if that had happened in the U.S., there is no question. They would have transferred. They would have transferred the patient. Yeah. Somebody else is willing to take it no matter what we think about it. Yeah. And it really shows the real differences between the U.K. and the U.S. when it comes especially to pediatric cases. Mm. In the U.K., they really take the best interest standard very literally. Yeah. And if you think it's a best interest standards, why should the parent's judgment really 
play that big a role. Got it. Whereas in the U.S., we're much more parentalist, and the standard really, in practice, is we may talk about a best interest standard, but in practice, unless it crosses a threshold of abuse or neglect on the one hand, mm-hmm. or ineffectiveness on the other, mm-hmm. um, we give parents huge latitude to make yeah. those kinds of decisions. Yeah, I think that's why Americans got so upset at that case. Whereas uh, you know, it was much more nuanced in Great Britain. And, you know, having done shows on it now, and, and my own thinking is still kind of somewhere somewhere in the gray on that. I think if they've got a place, that, if another physician says, I'm willing to do something mm-hmm. in the U.S., they'll just hard, go. Well, we, hard to see why you would say, I'm going to not let you go to that physician. Right, right, if somebody right. wants to do a research trial that right. they want to be a role right. in, right. why should you not allow it? Uh, yeah, and that? again, I think the best interest uh, idea there, they said, well, no, it, he would, it would trigger seizures, the transport, it would do this and that, that would might you, lead to it suffering. It might. Right. Uh, and, but usually in, in the U.S., we say, look, those are all things that you tell the parents. Right. There's no evidence that they were abusive or, neglected, or right. neglectful towards the patient. Right. They would take all those things into account in making their judgment after talking to both those other physicians as well as the physicians who think it's a bad idea yeah. and make their decision. That is absolutely how it would be done at almost every hospital in the U.S. What advice are you going to give to budding bioethicists or clinicians, nurses, administrators, people in leadership about how to think about ethics in their practice or as a career? I, it's interesting. I, those are two very different things. Institutionally, yeah. how we ought to be thinking about that from an administrative standpoint and all those things, I think it's important to really see what services you have available, mm-hmm. but also really think about the ethical climate of your institution. There's some really great work that the people at the VA have done where they've shown survey research showing vastly higher rates of burnout, uh, really uh, all kinds of things that we don't, higher uh, error rates, higher malpractice rates in a climate that's ethically not as good. So when nursing staff feels empowered to raise ethical concerns, when staff feels power to do that, you get much better outcomes. So do those surveys and make sure, and do it, do it, uh, an evaluation of the ethical climate of your institution and make sure you've got a good climate of your institution. I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's so important. It, it, it flavors the culture of everything. And I can tell you just even working this hospital at Stanford and then across the bay at a different hospital, uh, community hospitals, the, the, the ethical climate is very different, especially in terms of incentives to do things to people instead of for people and those sort of uh, broader sort of concerns that really do impact your feeling of, is this my calling that I'm yeah. practicing or am I doing a job yeah. to make money? Uh, David Magnus, this has been legit for real. Like I I try to make jokes during this thing and you can't because it is actually a super important topic yeah. that should impact all of us. I actually do have a sense of humor, but I have a hard time doing it when I'm talking about such serious You know, and, and that's appropriate because uh, what you do is so important to actually all of us on the front lines who are practicing medicine. And I want you guys to still understand that uh, donating, uh, becoming an organ donor, listing yourself. Oh, you know, one, one last thing. This opt-in versus opt-out idea. So right now it's an opt-in to be an organ donor. You got to click a box. And I said in my video, I'm like, you know, I think that would help a lot if we could make it an opt-out. So you have to actively go out of your way to opt out as an organ donor. What are your thoughts on that? Would it really help at all? It might help a little bit, not a lot, because for mm. brain-dead patients, which is the only ones that that would apply to, we actually convert about 70% of the eligible donors now. So we do pretty well around the country at getting them. We just don't have enough Got uh, people who die in just the right way to be able to get, 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 get their organs. But on the other hand, if we can go from 70 to 80%, it won't stop the shortage it won't solve the problem but every organ we get isn't is there's some real patient there who needs that organ who's going to die without it and Mm. so every single organ we get makes a big difference that's that's exactly spot on i think that's exactly right and so i think what i'm getting from that david is we don't need more opting in although we do we need more death we need more death in the right way (laughs) yeah (laughs) or else you know someone else can't live well, we really probably in the long run need are other alternatives. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's what you said it. Grown, uh, Grown. And next time we have you on, can we talk about stem cells? Absolutely. That's another specialty of yours. Yep. I would love to do that. Guys, I want you to list out the questions the next time I talk to David, if he agrees after this, if I haven't destroyed his career, uh, to talk to him about uh, ethics issues, it would be a huge resource to have him. And turns out you're a fan of the show. Huge fan. Dude, so... What's your favorite Vader episode? Because I think you got to be a Vader. Well, fan. the the, the Doc Vader versus the health professional is definitely uh, the health administrator is definitely way way up there. Have you been in that position where you're like, I didn't mean to say that in a mixed company, and you're sitting there in HR? You've never been in front of HR, have you? 
I have not. Okay, well, there you go. That's the ethically correct thing to do. Uh, so, but I, I think that's just really brilliant. Uh, the other one I really loved was when the uh, when Doc Vader comes in and the uh, um, uh, uh, the new uh, immigration ban was put in place. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> he was like, oh, they're, they're building the wall on the wrong border. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the Canadians. It's, it's musical terrorism. <laughs> I love that. You are a fan. I, I love the part where I said, we said, I get it. It's because I'm black. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> you know what? So here's the thing. When I do things like that, everybody's like, oh my gosh, what did he do? I'm like, no, that's exactly. I thought it was brilliant. Th that's the issue is like, he's being stereotyped. He's got a black helmet and a no, black suit. I am a huge, huge fan. Um, so. Yeah, I'm glad. Do you, do you mind? Can I show these guys your office real quick? Is that too uh, much? Oh, I don't know if you too want embarrassed? to do that. Too, too embarrassed? Bit, maybe. My wife, I, it wouldn't bother me as much, but my wife might. Okay, might then I'll just it. describe it. This is a beautiful scene right here. It's very academic. If I turned it around, papers stacked up this high, you know, tchotchke. He's like, like this guy. Brandon Crawford. <laughs> hey, who's a Giants fan out there? Look at this. Yeah, I'm always torn when you fill out surveys when they say religion about whether to say Jewish or baseball fan. <laughs> David Magnus, I'll go with Zoroastrian because that's me. And uh, I don't understand sports because they frighten me and I'm not good at them. Uh, do you play anything? No. Yeah, ah, that's perfect. How do you like living in the Bay? What? what I love it here. Should I move back? Yes, definitely. We need you. You need me. We need you. I need you guys. Uh, we definitely need you. Because, you know, it's a, it's a different environment in Las Vegas. There isn't a big, it's not a big academic environment, but it's more, it's interesting because a lot of people come through. But in this place, it's like, I can walk anywhere and run into like a world expert on something cool. That's actually one of the most exciting things about Stanford for me is I just love being able to talk to different colleagues who are incredibly well-known in all their fields. It's just really fun and a pleasure. And you realize like, oh, hey, I'm having this talk with a colleague about some things. And it's, it's Abraham Verghese, who's like a very well-known prominent person who's going to be on He's going to be on my show. Hey, look. And Abraham's awesome. So I can't wait because he's all about the touch and intuition. He reminds me a little bit of my dad. And again, immigrant, physician, and so on. So I'm excited about that. And I spoke to your colleague, Holly Tabor. Holly, oh, my she, center, we've got great people. Holly's awesome. She is fantastic and really passionate about this issue of uh, how do we um, deal in the medical community with uh, those with disabilities uh, from an ethical standpoint and a practical standpoint as well. So it, it's tremendous. So thank you again, my brother. I my really pleasure. appreciate it. So, Guys, uh, hit us up with questions. Do me a favor, hit share. If you have thoughts, concerns, hit us up. And uh, again, we're with David Magnus, super duper professor of everything biomedical ethics at Stanford. And we'll put all his uh, info in the blog post and in the description. And we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.